small business you want plugged here, let us know. You can reach us at contact at disevidentia.com, the Disevidentia subreddit, or at Disevidentia on Twitter. Today we are going to discuss corrections from episode 6, technical difficulties in the chip shortage, and work setting us free. But first, I'm going to go on a rant. Don't read my words, use my intent. <laughs> Don't read my words, read my mind. I'm okay. a podcaster, I'm an expert communicator. Words have meaning, sometimes. Words are really just tools. They are tools to move an idea from one person's head to another. This means that sometimes words are fuzzy because the idea is fuzzy. Most of the time, this is fine because we are dealing with people we know, or at least people sympathetic to us. And when we are vague, they can help fill in the gaps. At work, you might discuss the printer, and know we are talking about the one on floor 5 that always jams. Or we might talk in terms of filling the shift, because no one wants to work Saturday nights. At home, we might talk about dinner, and know that we're talking about that special mac and cheese recipe. Or we might talk about the other day, and know the exact event. Words can be imprecise, and still move the idea most of the time. This can break down when we are talking to unsympathetic people, like some sleazy salesman might sell you a warranty, knowing that warranty gives you the impression of protection, when in actuality it gives you a bunch of red tape and extra headache when the thing you bought breaks. This is not the only way words can break down. In the past few weeks, I've seen two words break down for different reasons. When I talk with people about evolution, a common argument is that it is just a theory. In common parlance, a theory is just an idea that isn't fully formed, a conjecture, a guess, a thing that might be. We could be playing cards, and I might have a theory about what cards are in your hand. When a scientist is discussing a theory, they have a different idea. What us lay people call a theory, they call a conjecture. And those don't have much evidence, but haven't been ruled out yet. Notice that extra specificity? To build on that specificity, a scientific theory has a body of evidence supporting it, and none disproving it. Gravity is a theory, evolution is a theory, how germs work is a theory, and we can look at germs with our own fucking eyes, with a toy microscope, and germ theory is still just a theory. So communication breaks down when people are trying to disprove evolution and don't know about the evidence, and then try to play semantic games. They often pull out the phrase, just a theory, because that word copied an idea in my head and pasted the wrong one in theirs. It doesn't help that people saying this are usually dishonest, or at best, misguided. The other word that failed me is socialism. When liberals say this, they mean some form of government with at least some centralized aspect. It is fuzzy. Some mean fully centralized, some mean the United States because we have social roads, and that's a broad gap. It often takes more words to clarify, but this is like discussing if submarines can swim. It is awkward, but it can be worked through to get the ideas across. When conservatives use this word, they are all over the place. Some mean something like a government, but many mean enemy. I had one tell me earlier today that every Democrat goal was socialism. I have seen plenty claim that canceling Medicare and getting rid of a social program was socialist. The guys over on the Cognitive Dissonance podcast relate a story where a conservative said, socialist is what we call that guy because we can't say the n-word. End quote. When used externally, this appears dishonest. But most don't seem to know what their words mean, so it is hard to call them liars. Many of them lived through McCarthyism and the Red Scare, or were raised by parents who took that seriously. I will link to some reading on that in the show notes. The short version is that socialism is a universal label for the enemy, 
because of this period of intense propaganda in American history. So they see the word as a loyalty test, or a way to vote to decide who the enemy is. If you agree the bad thing is socialism, you pass the loyalty test. Or if a thousand people call it socialism at once, then it must be bad. No need to actually evaluate it on its merits or look at any evidence. Even those contortions are words doing the job of moving ideas from head to head, just not in the direction that all people expect. If a conservative calls a thing socialist, they might be checking if you are a conservative, not telling about the status of workers' rights with regards to that thing. We can try to be more careful with words. When I am discussing my hunches with people, I often call them hunches, guesses, or conjectures. When I am discussing evolution, I leave out the word theory and stick to evidence and facts, as to avoid useless semantics. When I am discussing democratic principles, I say electoral principles, or rights of the republic, or something equivalent. But we also need to be careful with the ideas others are giving us. When someone says, God says homosexuality is a sin, are they really testing your response to their bigotry? When they say, chiropractors are doctors, do they know about pseudoscience? Or do they distrust science-based medicine? When someone says goofy Q shit, do they just mean to share their ignorance? I wish there were some deep moral or witty quip, but I don't have one. I just think we need to be careful with the words we give and get. Because there is no way to simply be more precise or otherwise guarantee clarity. We just have to muddle through each situation, knowing that our words dynamically impact our communication, and what we say or hear may not be moving the ideas as intended. You said software's made of ones and zeros? Based on recent events, it feels like mostly zeros. I would imagine some software that is the case. I haven't seen any good software in the past couple weeks. Even the software I wrote is garbage. So I guess we should start off with a couple corrections. Yes. In episode six, our big warning said Joe Manley. It should have been Jay Manley. Yep. Messed up there. I guess that's all the time he deserves. Damn. Also in episode six, we said that study participants wouldn't always be informed about what the study was about. And I guess that's not the case anymore. A guy with a master's in cognitive psychology who's a listener contacted me to let me know that uh, they do let people know after the study. It's not like some big, huge mystery, and there's like an ethics board and stuff that says what can and can't be withheld. Yeah, participants, they're made sure that they are informed at, uh, I, I guess... It would be at the soonest opportunity that it wouldn't compromise the results of the study. That's my understanding. Yeah. But if we have him on, and we'll try, then he'll tell us more. And again, he studied cognitive psychology, so it seems like he'll have opinions on evidence. Yep, almost certainly. Okay, so episode seven came out quite late. We had a whole bunch of really fun technical issues. My GPU freaking exploded. My system's water-cooled, so it's a giant pain in the ass to change that around. Mm-hmm. Uh, our video guy, we tried to get a new laptop so he could do the YouTube renders and get that done better and faster, and all of that's broken as all fuck. So I'm just very angry at technology. Yeah, all these failures happening so close together, as it's actually a little bit alarming. So my GPU died in during a power outage. Your computer didn't turn off. Yeah. But I was playing video games the moment—I was, I was in the middle of Valheim. And I was trying to run over and storm a little building with little goblin dudes in it. And during that moment, the power cut out. This lamp right up here, I'm pointing at the freaking ceiling of our basement where 
recording. Flickered for about a third of a second, but my computer totally turned off, and your computer, that's three fucking paces away... It didn't turn off at all. It didn't seem disrupted. That's the difference between having a 300 fucking watt GPU going full tilt and not, and because of Ohm's fucking law, for the briefest of moments, there was 10,000 volts going right through that part of my graphics card, so it fucking fried, and I was in denial for a good week while I tried to troubleshoot a boot issue. To be fair... Issues like what you experienced are sufficiently rare that it would be irresponsible to suspect that first. Yeah. Uh, As I was going through and trying to reinstall the OS, I was getting a ton of help from uh, boards online, and I was giving them, like, low-level kernel messages, and it got to the point where I was digging through the source code for the driver for my graphics card, and I realized this can't happen. This just can't happen. I just had to get tons and tons of evidence to get there, and I'm like, the only way this can happen is if the graphics card is very busted. So we looked for a graphics card, we found a spare one in a bucket somewhere, and got my computer to a, I don't want to say a working state, but to a state where we proved it was my graphics card, using evidence and experiments about half a day later. Yeah. And you want to discuss the video guys issues? Those were weird. I came into trying to troubleshoot that issue a little bit late, and there were performance problems with the render specifically much stronger hardware taking longer to render than the previous hardware that we were using to do the render and so trying to understand exactly how much better and like how it should perform the the overall performance characteristics not just of like the hardware itself because you can look up online and look at the numbers and get to a rough idea of what it ought to be, but I mean, you're never really using this hardware in a vacuum. You're using it with operating systems and custom software put on top of it. So trying to measure the ecosystem as best you can, decided to do some benchmarks, and we found that even the benchmarks were underperforming by an alarming amount. And this is just going to show that if we'd taken our own advice and started with evidence, which is what Mako did as soon as he started troubleshooting the laptop, if I'd done that on my system where I just started gathering real evidence, perhaps even putting it in a little chart, I could have narrowed this down much quicker instead of just following my gut. I should have been checking and verifying one thing at a time using a control and an experiment, a control and an experiment. And I would have had my issue dealt with in a couple days because it's still a pain in the butt to work in a water-cooled system. But Well, my gut did still kind of, or maybe bias, <laughs> gut bias, whatever you want to call it, did kind of play a little bit of a role, because as soon as I saw the performance was low, we well, we did collect a bit more information. Uh, we pulled up some hardware monitors, and we looked at what the, the thermals, trying to, to see if there was any kind of thermal threading. Not threading. Throttling? Uh, throttling. Thermal throttling. I'll throttle your computer for you. Thank you. Yours is the only computer that hasn't misbehaved yet. Yeah, my computers, I mean, they do misbehave, but it's pretty rare. It's the way I like it. Yeah, I don't want to get too mired in the technical details here. We've got yeah. a bunch of listeners who aren't computer experts. I was just more trying to hammer home on the, the point that we're computer people and we're evidence people. Both of these problems would have been solved much faster if we would have combined these two uh, affinities earlier. Yeah, collect evidence. And act off of the evidence. I guess I'll drop a link to the Gentoo Linux forums so people can read all the pain and experiments I went through before I realized what was going on. It's an amusing read for anyone who's halfway technical and just wants to see me, in the end, kind of cry a little bit and say, oh, it's busted. And the reason I bring, or we go deeper into this now than normal, in addition to it being about evidence, is uh, there's a worldwide chip shortage going on. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to replace 
this laptop or its graphics card or my graphics card, it's going to be interesting. Because when it was new, my graphics card was actually kind of expensive. It was like a six or $700 graphics card at the time, like, you know, a couple of years ago when it was new. But now there are newer, faster, better ones. And because of scalpers and shortages, the new cards are like $2,000. And even looking back, the cards that are comparable to mine are like 1200 Yeah, used to be that a flagship video card from NVIDIA would be about like 1500 to two grand. Now the same video card is going to be three grand or higher. Now for people not familiar, these graphics cards or GPUs, if you're not familiar with computers, think of them as the same thing. People who are familiar, you'll know how that's not true and we're just not going to go there. Subtle distinction, but yeah, Yeah. not relevant for this. We're not going to go there this, this conversation. Normally these things come in at a pretty high price, but then... As time goes on, the price keeps going down because there's a steady supply of new advancements. Every six months, every year or so, a new graphics card comes out from either AMD or NVIDIA, the two companies that make these things, and it's faster and better than the previous generation. And we we have that now. There's a new NVIDIA and a new AMD series of GPUs that are faster and better than the previous ones. (laughs) But because of the pandemic, chip factories in China, the rest of Asia, not just China, they're made other places, but they're shutting down because crypto mining is taking off for a variety of complicated reasons. People want these graphics cards. By the way, NiceHash NiceHash is a sponsor of our show. So if you happen to have a gaming system, use the link on our support page or in the show notes. You can get a little bit of money from this. One of our listeners is actually making about $10 a day with his mid-range gaming. I say mid-range. It's a 3060. What does that count as? That's decent, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the, the weakest of the newest line. I mean, it can handle pretty much every game out there. It's like a $500 card. Yeah. He's got a thing. It's making $10 a day, and he's gaming on it some of the time. But uh, this chip shortage, it's more than just COVID shut down some factories, right? And it's more than just graphics cards, because microchips are used in everything. Yeah. Right? So we've included a few sources here. There's one discussing TVs, one discussing graphics cards, and a couple discussing cars. And it made sense to me but I didn't expect the problem to be so wide scale on cars. It's like every model of car is having issues and the auto industry is expecting a $110 billion pullback. Yeah. Not a reduction from their goals. They're expecting $110 billion fewer in sales than last year. That's enormous. New car production has been slow. Like, used car sales are predicted to be the more dominant form of sales yeah and it's not electric cars in the second link uh we cite car and driver magazine car and driver magazine the webpage, whatever we cite car and driver and they have a list of tons of cars that are affected uh i pick out camaro because i used to have one they're fun but i eh, will get into my license later <laughs> i have a bicycle now Uh, Ford Broncos, F-150s, pretty much every other popular American car. Land Rover is just halted production. Hyundai thought they had a really good stockpile of chips they needed, and they've burned through it, and they're putting the brakes on their production. Uh, The only electric car on the the list that I saw was the Nissan Leaf. It's having trouble. Tesla's the only company not on the list that I saw, which surprised me. I see the gears turning, Mako. I'm just kind of wondering if that's a matter of a a difference in scale of production that's entirely possible that's a good point maybe we should look into that i guess a little bit more on gpus we cite pc world for the 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 graphics card and gpu uh, discrepancies but something else that's impacting this is people are staying home more right which i thought would mean car sales wouldn't need to go up but people are buying more tvs for home more you know more home entertainment electronics yeah people are playing more video games the new playstation the new xbox that came out 
they have the same types of chips in them that are in gaming graphics cards. And those were just released over, you know, over this last Christmas season. There's lots of extra demand and very constrained supply. And, and to highlight that demand, the PC World Source, they have a chart that shows Steam downloads. Steam is a, a popular online game store. In 2020, they delivered 25 exabytes worth of downloaded games. Now, for reference on what an exabyte is, if you've ever heard the term terabyte, it might be like the hard drive in your new computer. Is it a million of those? But they delivered 25 of that. In what time period? 2020. Oh. Yep. An exabyte is 1 million one terabyte hard drives. So they delivered 25 million one terabyte hard drives worth of downloaded video games in 2020. Now that sounds like a lot. What's our perspective here? What's our gauge, right? They delivered about 16 in 2019 and about 15 in 2018. Normal growth is one or two more exabytes per year, 10 more. That's how many more video games people were playing because they were staying at home, not going out getting infected during the pandemic. And you also have to figure more people were getting computers for doing office work at home. More people were buying TVs. The price of TVs, by the way, our Ars Technica source shows the price of TVs jumped a good 20% on high-end models. And this is all before we factor in foreign relations with China and the U.S. hating each other and tariffs with us importing things from other places. Yep. Can you think of even one good thing that happened to our microchip supply in the past year or two? No. I guess that's the end of the segment then. Yeah. Yeah, like it's just been bad, 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 and more bad. The closest thing to good is just less bad. Yeah. Today we are going to discuss corrections from episode six. <laughs> Throat. See? It's easy to fuck that one up. I don't know why. It wasn't a pacing thing, but something got snagged in my throat. Give less blowjobs. No. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my real dad. We've gathered a ton of sources and information on the general topic of workers being lazy because of reasons. For context, there is a lot of talk about the pandemic ending now that vaccine distribution has reached the point where it is, which a lot of people don't understand how not necessarily as far along as you might think it is. Oh yeah, tons of people are saying that we won't ever reach herd immunity. Yeah. There's too many anti-vaxxers and too many disadvantaged sufferers. Yeah, it varies uh, from state to state, of course. And uh, I could be wrong. Don't quote me on this. But I believe I even read that even now states like South Carolina have less than uh, 50% vaccination. Which is kind of nuts when you consider that like more than 200 million doses have been given out. That there are, you know, oh my God. Just... Yeah, it's obnoxious. So President Biden, he expanded benefits for people that are on unemployment insurance and it is believed by a number of people on both sides of the political aisle although more so on the right that these extra benefits are disincentivizing people from going back to work and these people also believe that now is the time to go back to work and resume the previous normal because that was working so great <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole lot of problems just with that premise alone, but keeping things uh, more strictly on topic, the there was a report on the number of new payrolls for the month of April. It was forecasted to have about a million new payrolls and instead had 266,000, and so it, it fall, yeah. fell way behind. Now, what you're saying there is the amount of new jobs, right? Yes. Okay. 
people are trying to find reasons to blame this on and they're blaming the unemployment benefits and they're trying to say that people are being lazy not going back to work and the situation is considerably more complicated than that is it really is it it well i mean yeah people died in the pandemic and people want to be paid more to risk their life it's pretty simple i mean we have different sources citing different things but we've got We've got hundreds of thousands of people who contracted it at work and then died and left vacancies, and people don't want to go work for people who let their employees die, especially for minimum wage. It just people don't want those jobs. Yeah. Doesn't seem that complex to me. <laughs> and we've only got like 12 million sources over here. Oh my god. So we did focus on these details in particular, and that's where a lot of our discussion is going to go, but... Even beyond this, I, I've read other stories that said that these people are taking the opportunity to uh, not leave the workforce, but change where they are in the workforce to retrain into new skills. And so, I mean, there's that extra detail. And I mean, if we keep on digging, we're going to find a lot of extra details. But yes, it is pretty widespread, particularly in the food service sector that people feel that they're just not getting enough pay for the amount of risk that they are taking. We have one source that claims that the most dangerous job of 2020 was line cook. Yes. A quick synopsis there is that the uh, mortality rate of line cooks increased 60% in the first seven months of the pandemic in California alone. It's a lot of specificity. But uh, for a job that you wouldn't expect people to be dying in, the basic idea is... Kitchens aren't well ventilated. Kitchens are cramped. Kitchens are hot. There's not as much sanitation as should be going on in a kitchen. A lot of the people who work in these kitchens tend to have less education, tend to be less likely to be the kinds of people who value hand washing. Pretty much everything about it is a perfect environment for spreading COVID. And these people rarely have access to healthcare. Yep. If you work for a group like... If you work for a big chain restaurant, there's a real chance that if you're about to go full-time, they'll just start cutting your hours so you don't, and you don't have health insurance, so you get sick. You go to work sick, because it's that or miss rent. So when people are saying that, oh, these unemployment benefits are keeping people from working, it's like, well, well, if it's keeping that guy from working, it's keeping people from dying from COVID, and that's good. And if, like you're saying, these people are retraining... Maybe this guy can go get an A-plus certification and go get a basic IT job that'll pay him double what minimum wage is. In a much safer environment. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, God. Okay, so why don't we start teasing out little parts of this? What's what's a small area to focus on? Because we've got minimum wage, we've got UBI, we've got healthcare, we've got so many things that conservatives would just scream, ah, that's socialism and therefore bad. Let's start with minimum wage, I suppose. Okay. Even minimum wage is multifaceted. Yep. We can discuss raising it. We can discuss what it should be. We can discuss the secondhand impacts it will have. So why don't we pick one part of minimum wage? <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go with raising it. The $15 minimum wage that is being talked about by okay. a lot of people. So there was a moderate politics discussion on Reddit. And it shouldn't be called moderate politics. Those are some right-wingers. It's they, been gradually becoming more and more right-leaning. I'm getting close to being like, okay, yeah, no, I'm out of here. I unsubbed more than a year ago. Yeah. They, they've, the moderators are right-wing. 
And every time you accuse them of being right wing, they're like, nah, uh And you're like, but you supported a Nazi here. I don't mean sort of. I mean, like, you can post where they said, never mind. Okay. So the one which moderate politics thing are you talking about? Oh, about the Nazi thing? No, no, no. no. Rewinding the so, conversation. The link that you gave, I just scrolled all the way down, and they were talking about uh, people not going back to work for uh, for minimum wage, and that if we raised the minimum wage, that it would disproportionately hurt small business. They were just throwing off these very stereotypical right-wing talking points mm-hmm. that don't have good backing. Okay. I didn't catch those comments. The, the comments that I... Oh, I expanded everything and read it all until oh. I had to stop. Yeah, I, I've kept it focused on where most of the activity was, and they were mostly just bashing the uh, unemployment benefits. Ah, okay. So uh, I did a little bit of reading on what happens when you actually increase minimum wage. Mm-hmm. By and large, it seems to be that the poorest of the poor people who are still stuck with minimum wage jobs wind up working fewer hours to help their employers save uh, payroll money, but they still get about the same money. So for the people directly impacted, like for the poorest people involved, it's a good thing. They're not making more money, but they have more free time. So they can do things like train to get a different job or look for a different job even in the same industry. So that's good. You know, an extra three, four hours a week, that's not anything to sneeze at. Yep. I never saw any evidence that minimum wage increases were linked to reduced productivity, right? Oh, no. And I saw plenty of, of information showing that... Uh, it hit big chains and little stores. I don't want to say evenly, because it did hit small firms more. So that is somewhat true, but it's not like 90% more. Yeah. Right? There are plenty of big stores that are running on thin, terrible margins. And ones that came up were Pizza Hut, Family Dollar, and a lot of these older chains that aren't as firmly established as, like, McDonald's. Right? McDonald's will figure it out. McDonald's, if they can't afford people, they'll replace a whole restaurant with a machine that's one big vending machine. They're working on it. Yeah, They want to do it. They've got their act together. But Family Dollar is really poor, really barely held together, and Family Dollars close when when the economic winds blow slightly. <laughs> they're just they're they're not a sound business. Same thing with a bunch of mom and pop shops since they're more solo. Yeah, they get bit more. So that's not entirely untrue, but at the same point, the same people who yell about this affecting small business are also the same people who want the free market. So it's like, do you want the free market or not? <laughs> if we value the free market that, and we don't want people to like suffer horribly, we need an alternative to the minimum wage. Anyway, I haven't seen anywhere that increasing the minimum wage makes people work less, except when they are forced to take fewer hours by their employers. Yeah. One other common complaint about minimum wage that people like to put out there is that it raises property values. Uh, rent prices and... Yeah, things like that. Saw no evidence of this. The only good connection between property prices and minimum wage that I saw was that new construction will cost more because you know if it takes a hundred hours and a hundred dollars worth of materials to build a thing, yeah. it's still going to take a hundred hours and a hundred dollars worth of material, but now those hours cost more if they were minimum wage hours, which they often are or Depends. close to. I highly doubt a crane operator's making minimum wage. But yeah, a guy swinging a hammer? Maybe. I suppose I was thinking mostly of thing, smaller scale, like house construction. Well, even then, a lot of those guys have been doing it for a while. I would... Maybe we should check wages on that. But we can put a, we can put a pin in that for now. We, we should 
for this, presume, yes, some of those guys are making minimum wage, some aren't. We don't know with more specificity than that. Mm -hmm. But there's no direct connection, like what people often talk about, where people say, ah, your landlord knows you got a raise, so he's going to raise your rent. No evidence of that. Yep. The closest I saw to evidence of that was people moving from rural areas to urban areas and correlating the cost of living with the cost of rent. It's not a valid way to approach that. Mm -mm. But it is the information a lot of people have. So yeah, so there's in any way making people lazier if that's what we're getting in. No. Well, I haven't heard people make that comment before, but uh, it wouldn't make sense regardless. Uh, some people try to make entitlement arguments like, oh, you're not entitled to this. And it's like, well... There was one very right-leaning blog. What was it? It was like Bigger Pockets. It was a Bigger Pockets blog. Dude opened up the very first sentence, described himself as conservative, and then went on to explain why he supported increasing minimum wage. And he kept couching it in terms of, these people don't deserve it, these people shouldn't get it, but you know what? I have fixed-rate loans, and in a couple years, these people will still be screwed when inflation catches up, but I'll be making a larger percentage of profit. And I'm like, wow, what, what greedy self-servingness. But he's still in favor of raising minimum wage. Whatever gets us to the goal. I get oh. <laughs> I don't think the goal is minimum is a higher minimum wage. I think the goal is reduced human suffering. Increased minimum wage, in my opinion, obviously does that. Yes. I guess one more piece in line with raising minimum wage. One of our sources, where was it? There's so many. Freaking an MSN article discussed how CEO wages raised at ten times the rate of minimum of the minimum wage. So not CEO pay is ten times more. The rate of growth, so if they grew, you know, if minimum wage grew 1% each year, they're saying CEO wages grew 10% each year. Yep. Right? If minimum wage grew at the same rate as CEO pay, minimum wage would be $44 per hour right now. I think I read the, the same article, and I'm, it's not quite, like, you're close to correct, but I think oh, there's a... correct a, me on it. Yeah. It's not specifically CEOs. It is uh, Wall Street bonuses, uh, Wall Street work and security workers specifically. Their bonuses grew at ten times the rate of minimum wage. Oh, so they also get salaries on top of that. Yes. So it's worse. Yes. This is one of those things where people who shout about the free market don't want to open up and acknowledge. People like that guy at the Bigger Pockets blog. They say things like, "These people don't deserve the money." The reality of the situation is. If you don't have a lot of skills and you're working for minimum wage, what are your other options? And do we want to live in the kind of society that lets people die? If you don't have enough money and you can't afford health care, you can't afford a place to live, I mean, that's, that's a recipe for homelessness or medical debt or otherwise horrible suffering that we have the resources to deal with. And it's not even that hard to deal with it. We're talking about Wall Street bonuses. Yeah could potentially be taxed, or billionaires could be taxed, or as this recent bill the Democrats passed through the House, we could reduce taxes on the poor and the middle class and increase taxes on billionaires and still wind up with a budget surplus. Or at least that's what they're projecting. Yep. We have the resources. We just have to, like, have a yacht cap. No more than three yachts per person. <laughs> and we can afford health care for everyone. Yeah. You got me going. Yeah. Things that that's actually a, a pretty good segue to go into 
UBI. Oh. That specific line of thought has come up in UBI discussions countless times. The same basic conservative thread applies to UBI as well. People say people won't work if if there's free money. Yeah, that's actually demonstrably false. So I found a bunch of examples of various basic income programs. By the purest definition, there's never been a real attempt at a UBI, you know, where it's uh, universal. Yeah, it's always not universal in some weird way. Like it's it's a, just a random collection of people or it's targeting a specific neighborhood or it's targeting specific low-income people. These are all conditions. Yeah, most people, when they talk about the basic part of the income, I mean, it has to be enough to live outside of uh, some definition of poverty. Often not the poverty line, but usually enough to like have a house and food and not starve. Yeah. Things like the Alaska Permanent Fund. Is it Permanent Wealth Fund? But dividend. That, yeah, thank you. The, the Alaska Permanent Dividend Fund? Just Whatever. dividend. But, yeah. but uh, 25% of all of the mined and extracted natural resources from Alaska, the, the proceeds from the sales of those go straight into this fund that has basic financial management. And they do things like buy stocks and bonds. And, and they sell enough of that each year, or they sell a little bit of that each year, such that the interest it's earning is less than the amount given out to each Alaskan. Now, some years this means as little as $1,000 goes out. Most years it's between four dollars and $6,000. Quite a bit. Is that right? That might be a different fund that I was looking at. But recently it's been smaller, and most years they get some four-digit sum. I don't want to be too precise because I read a ton on this. Yeah. And there's there's other groups that have other numbers, so I can't remember them all. But one thing that's that, that would keep the UBI purists from saying that this is a basic income, even though it's somewhat universal, it hits everyone in Alaska, it's not enough to live off of. Yeah. I mean, it's something. So if you work to cover yourself and you save this, you know, that might be a good uh, uh, emergency fund or something. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's not going to, you're not going to be able to be living large off the, the teat of the oil company in Alaska. It can't happen. Yeah. So it is universal to Alaskans, but it's not basic. I guess. That's how some people would look at it. Yeah. What it has impacted is people living in the most abject of poverty, right? Yes. Um, I think there are two big reasons contributing to Alaska having very low homelessness. I think it's this and the fact that if you're homeless in Alaska, you just kind of die. It's Alaska. Alaska winters are pretty vicious. Mm-hmm. Those two factors together have led to not a lot of people suffering in some of the ways that you see in the worst inner cities or the most impoverished rural areas. I don't know if you've heard stories of people living in the rural parts of America where the kids can't have shoes or they only get the shoes that were handed down to them by their sisters or or brothers or the inner city kids who uh, can't reliably get transportation to school because they can't afford like a, a bus pass and they don't have school busing in the area. That level of abject poverty doesn't exist. You still have poverty where it's like, oh, yeah, my house can't afford, you know, a TV, but we have a, a place to live and we have basic food. So it's it's taken the edge off of poverty, but it hasn't fixed it. Mm-hmm. And every economist that's looked at it has said there isn't been a significant impact on employment up or down. And if you look at it, there's another basic income program in Kenya and another one in Taiwan and another one in Finland. They all say very similar things. The one common thread for every single one of them, aside from employment was not significantly impacted, was that happiness was way up. Oh, yeah. The one in Finland, they noticed that people on their program, which was a random trial rather than everyone, uh, people on it 
trusted the government and trusted their neighbors and peers much more. Yeah. Just weird. When you're not constantly trying to scrape by on resources, you're not constantly thinking in that competitive mindset, tend to be more open and welcoming to things. Another one of the big ones was the Cherokee Casino Fund. This group of native peoples here in America put aside money that some of the casinos earn and just give it out to every person who's verifiably part of one of the uh, the Cherokee first peoples. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if I'm using the right terms here. I'm trying not to be offensive, <laughs> but they're getting quite a bit more money than the Alaska Permanent Fund is giving out. And these people have broken out of common, horrible issues. And it's a different set of issues than what people in Alaska or Finland or Kenya are breaking out of. But they're breaking out of their problems with the money they've been given. And by and large, they have employment rates matching people from other ethnic backgrounds in the areas they're in. It's almost like people are making their own decisions, like that free market thing where people get to make their own decisions as long as they actually have enough resources to make decisions with. Yep. Uh, I do remember the pilot experiment, the UBI pilot experiment that was done by a Japanese billionaire. He also... Sorry. Billionaire. Is that a billionaire in yen or a billionaire in dollars? Because that's different. The article didn't specify. Yeah, because it's different, but I guess maybe it isn't. Depends. Fantastically wealthy is fantastically wealthy. So uh, I believe it said that he started just giving basic income to a thousand random Twitter followers. What? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it it was enough to be a basic income. And in addition to these other common themes, he also noted from the the surveys and you know questioning uh, people that he was giving the money to that they were three point nine times more likely uh, to try to open a business. Oh yeah, yeah. If, if you have something to fall back on, you're more likely to take more risks. Well, I don't want to just say risks, but well reasoned risks. Yeah, because if you get very poor. You might take bad risks. Like uh, one of our followers sent me a video with, uh, this was in relation to the guns episode. That's another video on Discord. But this guy with a shotgun broke into someone else's house, and the homeowner repelled the guy with a shotgun with his bare hands. Hmm. Yeah, so it turns out a good guy with judo can stop a bad guy with a gun. <laughs> okay. But the the point I was trying to make to connect it here, I would imagine if that guy that did the home invasion had a little bit of money he might have been less inclined to break in places. Yeah. When you have your basic needs met, like housing, healthcare, food. Those things Maslow cared about. (laughs) If you have these things met, then doing things that could functionally end your life, like trying to do an armed home invasion. Against an apparent black belt. That uh, doesn't really seem like a good risk-reward proposition. So I would imagine people are much less inclined to engage in entire swaths of crime yeah so that's why i wanted to distinguish kinds of risk starting your own business is a risk invading someone's home with a gun is a risk yeah but the risk reward is very different right you can get a moderate reward robbing someone's home you could get their tv some jewels but where are you at when you reach the failure state yeah you could die with the armed robbery so you have to be pretty desperate to take a moderate reward for such an extreme risk And the risk in starting a business, right, if you succeed, you could be a millionaire in 10 years' time. That's a really good way to earn a lot of money is start a business that is successful and work at it for several years. And if you fail, you know, maybe you're in poverty. Maybe you're poor. Maybe if you didn't do it right, you hurt your credit score. 
Usually not even that. You can often cut it if you have something to fall back on and go back to a day job. Mm -hmm. We have friends that have done that, right? In our gaming group, we have one person who ran a store, but then decided that wouldn't work out and he went and got a day job. Yep. So his failure mode wasn't death. (laughs) His success could have been anywhere from barely scraping by running a store to possibly being fantastically wealthy, having set up a successful chain of stores. But you can't do that. You can't get to a point where you think that risk is good if you don't have something to fall back on. If you're a cashier at Walmart, you're not going to be able to build up a nest egg large enough to take a well-reasoned risk. But you might become so poor that you decide that gun section starts looking appealing. And so this is something that is touched on by a a very popular, uh, I don't want to say soundbite, it's just barely too long to be a soundbite, but a short quote from Andrew Yang that he said when he was on the presidential campaign trail regarding UBI specifically, because that was one of the big things that got him a lot of attention while he was campaigning. And just taking all the things that we are saying about UBI, that it it doesn't really meaningfully change employment and uh, it gives people, like in the case of Alaska, cuts out the, the bottom most portion of poverty. If we, if they had more money, then presumably more poverty would be eliminated. At least like the, the bottom line would that's, get further pushed up. That's the going logic. We don't have a lot of good evidence for that. Yeah. There's been no experiment with a basic income that has completely lifted the populace, given it out of poverty without significant conditions. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. You're saying about Yang's freedom we, dividend. We have a bunch of things that have been poking at it that collectively suggest it, but you're right. We have nothing that outright says it. Yeah, it, it is the reasonable logical conclusion to draw, unless you have some other evidence that it caps somewhere. And we need larger scale experiments in order to figure that out. And so far, people have been slow and careful about doing these experiments. But Andrew Yang's comment was that a UBI is not socialism. It is capitalism that simply does not start at zero, creates a new common floor. I like that approach a lot. And another point Andrew Yang brings up often is there is a lot of unpaid labor. Yes. If we have stay-at-home parents, raising kids is an important task. Or the elderly. Right. Taking care of mom and pop when when, when they need it. That's important. Yeah. Imagine if we weren't successful software developers and we couldn't save up enough money to say, hey, let's start a podcast. Mm -hmm. Right. There's plenty of people who could make better podcasts than us, but weren't as good at being software developers as us to save up a nest egg. They couldn't have done it. They're starting at zero. We're not. Yep. It's another thing that ticks me off about a lot of these people who think the country is a meritocracy. And don't get me wrong. I really like the idea of a meritocracy. People earning what they earn instinctively i think everybody has an appeal to uh, meritocracy has an appeal to them but we don't have a meritocracy no we don't have it we're nowhere we, we have nothing like a meritocracy we have a bunch of people who have things presume they only have them because they earned them and ignore the very concept of inheritance yeah they're taking a, a top-down approach which is the the to try to rationalize it and that's the opposite of correct yeah and I think a lot of these people also feel threatened because they don't realize the scale of wealth disparity. The rich people in this country are really, really rich. Yeah, it's outrageously wealthy. Yeah. So when I say that, I don't just mean like, oh, a million dollars is a lot. Okay, let me, let me put this in perspective. If I had a million dollars, I could put it in a thing called an index fund. It's a financial thing where I can get, on average, about 4% out per year. So if I had a million dollars, I could stick it in this account and I could pull out $40,000 a year 
and I would have my own personal UBI, and I would never be poor in a given year than that, and then I could go about trying to earn a normal living. That's a lot of fucking money, right? If I had a billion dollars and I did the exact same thing, I could do it, except I'd start at $4 million a year, and I would never lose my money, because every year I'm making that 4%. What the hell is it like to have a spare $4 million every year, and I literally couldn't run out of money if that was the pace I pulled the money out? That is what it is to be a billionaire. You can never run out of money if you spend less than $4 million a year. <laughs> that means every year I could try to open up a Quiznos and fail. <laughs> Ouch. I'm not saying all Quiznos fail. I mean, they did. But I just, I, I was trying to pick a franchise, and they cost $3.7 million to make a Quiznos. McDonald's is like $15 million. So I could try to make a McDonald's every fourth year and not succeed. Or... How about this? What's the price of cocaine, right? I don't have the answer to that. Okay, this is going to be a great source for the show note. Oh, no. Price of cocaine. Why do you do this? We have to earn our explicit tag somehow. Okay, fine. How much do drug costs? The steep price of addiction. Oh, God, he's talking about his soul and his life. Oh, here we go. Uh, That's weed. Price of opioids. This will work. Okay, so at the price of $40 per fentanyl patch. Okay, and this isn't good because uh, people who get addicted to fentanyl, they'll do like two or three patches at a time. And then and then when you get up to like five, you die. So, OK, let's say I'm hopped up on fentanyl and I'm at the point where I can do four patches at a time. If each patch lasts two hours, that means I can do 12 doses at four doses each. That's 48. I, I can go through 48 fentanyl patches a day. That's a lot. Times $40 per fentanyl patch, meaning every day I'm spending... $1,920 on fentanyl. So $1,920 times $365 is only $700,000, okay? Meaning that if I were a billionaire and I spent all of the money I possibly could on fentanyl that wouldn't kill me, I would still have an extra $3 million a year to play with. I could not do enough drugs to exhaust my money if I were a billionaire. It just is not possible. I would just die. Yep. But anyway, the, for fantastic wealth, right? Someone with a billion dollars will never run out of money pulling out $4 million a year. And that's what I'm trying to articulate is how ridiculously wealthy these people are. Yeah. A million dollars would be completely life-changing for me. I would be able to deal with debts, kick businesses off. I'd never ask for another Patreon supporter. <laughs> By the way, if you want to support us and have absolutely none of your money go towards fentanyl, <laughs> patreon.com <Wow>. slash disinfidential <laughs> wow <sighs> oh, sorry sorry I took us way off trap way off topic here I will include the source for how much fentanyl costs in the show notes if you tax these fantastically wealthy people who cannot possibly spend their money that could be potentially used to raise the floor for the rest of us uh, yeah so I've heard other discussions happening trying to convey the, the, the huge amount of wealth that being a billionaire has. And saying things like, uh, you want to just never have to pay for education again. Well, Jeff Bezos alone can do that. If just a portion of his wealth were to be redistributed, we can just solve education forever. Well, for the foreseeable future anyway. And we could probably keep that afloat. So it is just a huge, huge amount of money. And raising the floor, like, oh my god, so much.
much I can rant about. For perspective, there are 614 billionaires in the U.S. That's quite a few. It's actually more than I thought. It's gone up since the Trump presidency and since the last recession. Of course it did. Because during a recession, if you're really rich, right, it it sucks for you because you lose a few percentage points off your portfolio. And you don't care because other things (laughs) crash. You buy those crashing things and then you make more money when they recover. That's exactly where I was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks for the rich guy because he loses a couple of percentage points. It sucks for the poor guy or for the middle income guy because he loses his house. (laughs) Yeah. Totally different scales of failure here. Yeah. It is ridiculous. But being able to have ready access at a minimum to food and lodging would have pretty substantial benefits. Then expanding it even further, having access to health care, having access to education, having no barriers to any of these things. It means that every single citizen would have the maximum opportunity to reach the maximum potential that they can. And that's just, that's not the system we have right now. It is, the system we have right now is you are a perpetual victim of the circumstance you were born into. And some people break out of that, but they are the minority. Well, we actually have good numbers tracking social mobility. Yeah. And some years ago, you introduced me to the concept of the Gini Index, the GI... Gini Coefficient. Gini Coefficient. Yes. Was it the global income? Something like that. Yeah. But basically, it's a single number that is assigned to countries or regions based on a variety of social factors, including how easy it is for rich people to become poor, how easy it is for poor people to become rich. Also, the gap between the poor and the rich. Yeah. Like... Here's an example of why the Gini coefficient in the U.S. has gone down. It used to be that the average lowest paid employee at a company and the CEO at that company had about a 20-fold difference. Today, that difference is closer to 100-fold. The CEO has made a ton more money while the average worker has not. Yeah. yeah. So things like this mean that even though it looks like we have a ton of money on paper, in practice, in the U.S., that money's very inequitably distributed. Even people who feel like they're well-off actually aren't compared to some of the really, really well-off people. Like, the difference between someone who's middle class and someone who's very poor might be their car and house, and that's it. If you inherit a car and a house, you're likely to stay middle class the whole rest of your life because you can use your car and house to... You know, buy another car and another house. Mm-hmm. But that will never get you to the next ridiculous tier of wealth that comes from doing things like buying businesses or being an early investor or hitting the lotto. Hitting the lotto. Okay. That'll that'll make you not poor real fast. If you win, sure. Well, that's hitting. Guess. Fine. Winning the lotto? That's more explicit, yes. Hitting the jackpot? That works. I, mis- I mixed my terms. Okay. I don't know. I don't know either. We haven't touched all the different topics. No, there is... There's at least one other one I, I do think we absolutely do need to, to touch on before we end the conversation. We started with unemployment. Is that where you're going back? Well, the amount that Americans work is where I was going to go. Oh. Do we have a good point for comparison? Perhaps? Regrettably, we do. Oh. Well, certainly we're doing better than medieval peasants. We're literally not. So it's a little bit difficult to get like exact metrics on the amount of hours worked by medieval peasants. But you know, we got some good information. We know that generally they worked from sunrise to sundown. So as seasons change, their work hours change. And so we tried to measure them, like the amount of work hours annually. And we know that they took frequent breaks, breaks throughout the day, uh, like for many reasons. Best we can tell, 
the average amount of work that 13th century peasants worked was 1,620 hours annually. Now, if we look at the average American worker as of recent. How about my last year at Ameritrade? <laughs> I, I took uh, one week off. Mm-hmm. Right, but I worked. I'm gonna say 40 hours a week. Sure. It doesn't count me driving there. It doesn't count the overtime. It doesn't count the on-call time. So 40 hours times 51 weeks puts me at 2,040. Not counting overtime. Not counting drive time. Not counting on-call. What do you say the medieval peasant had? 1,620. That's like 400 more hours than a medieval peasant that I worked. Yeah. Now, granted, I'm not in a field shoveling shit or whatever, but the, the average American worker. According to uh, this publication, works 1,780 hours, which is still a whole 160 hours more than a medieval peasant. You got to figure that the average American worker includes guys hauling around bricks, people digging ditches, people flipping burgers, people scrubbing toilets, people convincing anti-vaxxers to take vaccines. So, I mean, the medieval peasant life is looking better all the time. Yeah. Frequent breaks all throughout the day. They also had a lot of uh, expected holiday days, didn't they? Yeah. Like if uh, somebody new came from out of town, uh, like if there was a carnival or something, there was an expectation that break would or work would just be kind of called off that day. Mm-hmm. Right? And there were various religious and uh, ceremonial holidays that were just days off and uh, pretty much no working on Sunday, right? I don't remember reading that, but wouldn't surprise me. Well, I mean, medieval peasant had a little bit more religion in their life than the average American does, keeping the Sabbath holy. And I think that was in that source. Are you talking about the... Uh... Vintage news? Yes. Yeah. That one specifically called out Okay. every Sunday off. So they wouldn't have to go into the server room on Sunday to swap out a single CD after driving an hour each way to swap out the one fucking disc. That never happened to me. No, never. Sounds like it happened to you. Anyway. Oh my God. So that's fun. You know, trying to call large swaths of the population lazy when we are literally working more than medieval peasants is interesting, to say the least. Is that counting people with multiple jobs? Do we know that? I don't remember specifying. Because a lot of uh, labor statistics are gathered by employers, and employers don't often know how many jobs you're working. So it's entirely possible that somebody has a shitty fast food job where they're being screwed for hours so they don't become full-time. Let's say they're working at McDonald's and they're given, you know, 28 hours a week. So that way they never accidentally hit that 30 hour a week threshold and qualify for health insurance. Yep. And then they get a second job at Walmart who does the exact same thing, but sticks them at 25. Now you've got somebody working 50, 55 hours a week, something like that, which that makes the numbers look absolutely insane. If, if we if we do that, it's 52 times 55 that person would be working 2,800 hours. That that person exists. That's not a rare person. And that's shitty, like, labor-intensive, health-risking type of work. And I've met that person. And that's 1,200 more hours than the medieval peasant. And that person can't afford a place to live. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I really do think we could use a, a floor for our economic activities. Very much so. It would be nice if that floor were somewhere near the poverty line, but any floor at all seems like it would be pretty good. Okay. So medieval peasants aside, there were a whole lot of other points in these sources. So many. Are we going to be able to get through them all? And we can just pick some other key important ones. Mm-hmm. Let's look. What's What sticks out in our three pages of just this one topic? 
One thing I think is interesting about a lot of workers leaving their jobs is the amount who left one restaurant or one retail place all at once. Yeah. There's a bunch of really good signs, and they're very different depending on whether the workers put them up or the employers put them up. Very different <laughs> sentiments. So like one that I remember specifically was over a drive through and said, closed, closed because people aren't doing the work they signed up for. As if people signed up to die in the pandemic for minimum wage. The exact quote for that sign is, We are temporarily closed because people do not show up for the job they signed up for. Oh, you have it up? I I knew that one was going to be quoted, so I set that aside in the notes. Okay. There's so many things wrong with that one quote. Like you said, like... People didn't sign up to potentially die. They didn't sign up to be mistreated. And even if for some weird warped reason that they did, people can kind of just change their minds. <laughs> yeah, we're not slaves. We're allowed to not go into a job. They don't have to keep employing us. Yeah. But when we're talking in terms like that, where it's, I have the right to work, you have the right to not employ me, often that means one person at a time. And a typical fast food restaurant will have between 30 and 50 employees. To have a team that large to all walk out simultaneously means the employer done fucked up. And then to air their grievance with that particular word choice, it reeks of entitlement on the employer's part. They think they should just be able to do whatever they were doing and just keep on doing it. They think it's just fine and it is other people that have the problem. And no, no, not how any of this works. One of the sources, and this was Bloomberg, cited a study done by Microsoft, and they have some charts in there. This is a, it'll be the only Bloomberg source if you want to take a look at it in the show notes. But the charts show how vastly employers misjudge how happy employees are. Yeah. In there, they say that something like 60-ish percent of employers think that workers are prospering, and something like 40, 35 percent of employees think the same thing. There's a 23% difference. I remember the 23% pretty clearly. And if you go down the list, the more minority categories you fit in, the less likely you are to say that workers are prospering. <laughs> so women say it less. Uh, single isn't a protected class, but single people say it. Black people say it more. Uh, they didn't measure gay people saying it, but I have to imagine that if you're, you know, the one gay black woman... At a, at a workplace, you're probably feeling pretty shitty when your rich white employer tells you that you're prospering and you might feel different. And apparently most workplaces vastly underestimate the amount of people looking for work. Don't have good numbers on how many workplaces are or know how many of their workers are looking. It's a really hard number to get a, tr uh, a hold on. Yeah, there's a direct incentive to try to keep that on the down low from your employer. And for the employer to keep suspicions hidden from employees who are looking. But apparently 41% of all employees at any given time, you know, in the past year or so, mm -hmm. are looking for new work. That can't be healthy. No. I don't know what the right amount is, but I can't imagine it's 41%, and that number is misjudged by employers. They think it's closer to 10%. I think. Yeah. And it's much harder to judge, much harder to track. Employers are wildly out of touch, and largely it's employers leading these charges to do away with unemployment benefits. They're trying to force people to work without paying living wages. One extra detail from that article. That article did, uh, from what I gleamed, 
it uh the bloomberg article yeah it primarily focused on uh more tech related jobs it was a microsoft survey yeah and so one comment that stood out to me was a bunch of people were transitioning to work from home because of the pandemic of course mm-hmm. and with it the amount of meetings times just spent on microsoft teams or whatever oh yeah is shot up for people not familiar microsoft teams discord slack These are all chat applications that office workers often use to stay in touch with each other. Not the most fun applications, but they're important for these tasks, and they're Mm -hmm. the businessy version of Zoom. So these leaders are mandating more meetings, which makes them less productive, and they are also trying to contact these people at random odd hours. Like they, one person specifically commented that they are being messaged at like 9 p.m. well after established working hours by their whatever team lead or boss. And the boss is just like, yeah, no, this is fine. And like they're just doing little things like that to erode the concept of a, a regular schedule. And that is directly contributing to these people's unhappiness. Yeah, it's, there's not a whole lot to say there. It's uh, so many social norms have been broken down by the pandemic, and we haven't erected something humane in their place, we have a big scattershot of different people doing different things. Some some people are being treated well, but even in the best of times, switching jobs isn't easy, and now it's really freaking hard. So it's not like there's a free market for our labor. And if we want to talk about free markets, I keep going back to that because so many conservatives go there, we need to talk about a free market for the workers' labor. It is a product we are selling companies And we have to be able to establish a market rate for it because the worker is fundamentally disadvantaged because they can't sit around with an empty job for possibly years at a time. The average worker needs to get their next paycheck somewhat soon or they lose their home. That hugely disadvantages the little guy. Yeah, we we need something in, in this place. And I, I'm not saying that minimum wage is always the uh, increased minimum wage is always the fixed, or UBI is always the fix, or uh, unemployment benefits are always the fix. But places that have these things have better evidence-based outcomes than places that don't. So even if this isn't the long-term fix, something similar to it will be. Yeah. Or at least something that solves all the same problems these solve will be part of that end solution. Yeah. <sighs> So we have links to Twitter discussions, links to Reddit discussions, the Business Insider link that got Mako started on this kick, an article to the Wall Street Journal, which cites a Federal Reserve study, which I gathered counter evidence on from the New York Times. And actually, that is all a big mess of details we didn't go too deep into. It's how bad lockdowns were impacting jobs in different places. Turns out the answer is unclear. (laughs) It is messy and terrible. Vox has a really good article on UBI and basic income experiments, and there's a whole lot of interesting political details. There's interesting ways the permanent fund has impacted Alaskan politics. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. One of the few evidence-based articles on how $15 minimum wage impacts uh, real estate prices. Various core questions that are subjective rather than objective evidence. That Bigger Pockets blog from that douchebag I mentioned earlier. (laughs) I mean... Dude says people don't deserve to live. He's a fucking douchebag. He can, he could fuck off. Yeah. The LA Times and a version that's cash to get around their annoying pay. It's not even a paywall, but it's like an ad thing. If the ads don't load right, they fuck with you. The Bloomberg article that has uh, a bunch of numbers about the survey we were just discussing. The CNBC article talking about uh, about excess mortalities. 
Uh, an article from Newsweek talking about staff leaving. <laughs> this one has pictures of the sign. Jacobin Magazine. It's always good when you have a French Revolution political party right in the name of your uh, magazine. Uh, but they have information about morbidity rates on line cooks. It's actually a really good read, and I really like Jacobin Magazine. Just their name is obviously politically charged. You know, they probably did that because a lot of people who aren't familiar with history, <coughs> conservatives, <coughs> won't know that that's a political party. Uh, the MSN article talking about if Wall Street salaries and bonuses, bonuses kept up with minimum wage or vice versa. Yep. Uh, the Vintage News site, which is actually a really awesome site. I went through a ton of their articles. They have a ton of good stuff. And they cite two uh, professors, one uh, Juliet Shore, professor of psychology at Boston College, James E. Rogers, a professor at Oxford. And they go over 13th century peasants working more time than uh, modern Americans. There's an NPR article talking about the origin of the term welfare queen we didn't get too deep into. Yeah, the person that was used as the focus for that term is a very extreme outlier for a number of reasons. She should have a movie made about her. No shit. Yeah, it would be like Catch Me If You Can, but like... But yeah, like just, not just the scale of welfare fraud that she executed but that wasn't even the most significant crimes that she committed she did other things like kidnap children holy shit yeah it's a really extreme case yeah and she was bad enough that she was the basis for the term welfare queen and sort of like the person reagan yeah. pinned his hat on stopping even though there's only one of her yeah reagan tried to make it look like this was the norm when no this is a, a outrageous outlier yeah. Okay. The last couple of sources were I got my price for fentanyl from Addiction Center and only from Addiction Center. Definitely don't know the street price of fentanyl. And uh, I grabbed a Wikipedia link so I could know how many billionaires there were. Is that it? That uh, appears to be it. Maybe we'll come back to Linda Taylor later because the whole welfare queen thing maybe deserves its own thing. Maybe. All right. That just happened. Uh, say it again. Why don't we say it? Say what drugs you're not doing. <sighs> No one will believe you at this point. Drugs that I'm not doing. You want me to list every fucking drug? I'm not doing any drugs. I'm not sure I should believe you. Not even prescription ones. You protest a lot. Oh my God. Thanks to our supporters, including NiceHash. See the link in the show notes to get that sweet Dogecoin from your computer. By the way, that's totally true. This week, NiceHash started uh, letting you mine Dogecoin. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters at the evidence investigator level or higher, including Jared, Duct Tape, Keldar, Lazori78. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and tell your friends about the podcast. Copyright 2021, Blacktop Studios, Inc. Intro music was slow by Pit X. Used with permission. I don't have anything funny to say about the legal shit. It just, no, it just is. Copyright messages are not funny. It, it just is. Okay, stop like that. Uh, okay. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. It's not do, it's do, it's the first two letters of don't. Remember, anytime you think you can do, don't. <laughs> wow. You should have been a guidance counselor. They won't let me anymore. <laughs> anymore. Too many suicides. Ugh. <laughs> It would have been better if you were just like, and not allowed to, court order. <laughs> there wasn't enough evidence for a court order. <laughs> of course not.